0: Welcome to the Medici Podcast, Episode 44, Interregnum. Since I didn't want to risk adding more to an already overstuffed narrative last time, I did just slide over what I think was one of the most important political events of the 16th century, the election of King Charles of Spain as Emperor Charles V of the Holy Roman Empire. Now that might just seem like icing on the cake from Charles's point of view, but being Archduke of Austria... Duke of Burgundy, and King of Castile and Aragon wasn't enough. You had to be Holy Roman Emperor, too. But to be fair, Charles himself believed that if he didn't gain the imperial title, it would have been a risky situation. After all, the Holy Roman Emperor had historic claims on many of Charles' titles in the Netherlands, and having an unfriendly emperor would even threaten the Habsburg ownership over their own heartland, Austria. This nightmare scenario would have definitely been the outcome if that emperor also happened to be the king of France. With the encouragement of the elector of Brandenburg and the elector of Saxony, King Francois indeed threw his own crown into the ring. France wasn't part of the Holy Roman Empire, but in the past foreign princes had run for the office and had come very close to claiming it like the English prince Richard of Cornwall, who was elected king of the Germans, but was never actually crowned emperor in the 13th century. So even though Charles had his grandfather Maximilian's blessing to succeed him as both Archduke of Austria and emperor, he was still forced to spend lavishly to essentially bribe the electors. It's not just possible, but likely, that the imperial electors never really considered Francois to be a serious competitor. They just wanted a heated election, where at least two candidates would flood them with honors and cold, hard cash. There was even talk of electing Charles's brother Ferdinand or one of the electors themselves, like the Elector of Saxony or the Count Palatine. It was this option of a non-Habsburg German prince that Pope Leo, who wished to see the Holy Roman Empire broken off from Spain and Naples, desperately wanted. From our perspective in the present, we just see that despite everything, there actually is a long, almost unbroken line of Habsburg Holy Roman Emperors. But at the moment, for Charles, it wasn't a sure thing. But in the end, all seven electors voted unanimously to confirm Charles as king in Germany and king of the Romans, titles that the rulers of the empire by that time used until they were crowned emperor by the pope. Agents of King Henry VIII of England, who also half-heartedly competed for the title Estimated that, all in all, this election cost Charles a staggering 1.5 million florins. I mentioned last time how vast Charles V's empire was, but the fact was it was an empire kept together by duct tape. The frustrating paradox that faced Charles was that by the size of his territories, he was the greatest monarch Europe had seen in centuries, but he was also, in some ways, more vulnerable than either Francois or Henry. Compared to other empires throughout history, being the emperor of the Habsburg territories was basically being an emperor on hard mode. Generally, empires expand and consolidate their territories in regions where cultural and political traditions, if not the languages, are similar, like in China or India. Or if they do expand into lands inhabited by peoples very different from them, they're in a position to culturally and socially assimilate them, which is how the Roman Empire worked in Western Europe. In Charles's case, though, he found himself with an empire that had to function on top of a multitude of different countries that all had their own unique legal and political institutions that had evolved over the course of centuries. Each of them had their own ideas about the powers of the monarch, their own representative bodies and political traditions, and even their own past agreements between the people and the sovereign. Even a place like the Spanish kingdom of Aragon had its own concepts about the authority of the king in relation to the representative body called the Cortes that were significantly different from the case in the neighboring kingdom of Castile. Charles simply couldn't just set up a capital in Vienna or in Madrid and govern all of his territories from there. Instead, he had to constantly travel, as well as leave a great deal of power in the hands of various subordinates. These included his brother Ferdinand, who ruled Austria on Charles's behalf since 1521, and his Aunt Margaret, whom Charles appointed the regent of the Netherlands. Charles lived in a time when the expectation that people were entering the end times was high, both in the Christian and Islamic worlds. The fall of Constantinople and Grenada, the revolt of the Hussites, the Ottoman conquest of Jerusalem and Egypt, and the discovery of new lands unmentioned in any ancient text, all happening within the span of a lifetime no less, seemed to herald the end of the world. The new Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, Suleiman, began wearing a special four-part crown that symbolized his status as the last great emperor before Judgment Day. He even adopted the title Sahib Quran, World Conqueror. Similarly, as early as 1515, Charles was the subject of prophecies that predicted that he would bring England and all of Italy under his rule and that he would finally retake the Holy Land for Christendom. After Charles was born, King Henry VII of England himself predicted that Charles will be able to rule the world. Later on, his son Henry VIII was excited to wed his daughter, Mary, to Charles, since he was flattered at the idea of at least being the father-in-law to the possible emperor of the world. It was only when Charles snubbed Henry and instead married Isabella of Portugal that Henry became obsessed with the idea of fathering a male heir, no matter what, a decision that, incidentally, will have consequences for the history of the Medici. How seriously Charles himself took the idea of becoming the emperor of the world is something of a mystery. Early on, Charles was willing to go to great lengths to protect his inheritance, although in some ways this was as much self-preservation as it was ambition. As we'll see... He also didn't hesitate to add new domains to the Habsburg Empire when he could. And yet, he hesitated to make certain moves that would have all but guaranteed more titles for the Habsburgs, like marrying the likely heiress to the Kingdom of England for himself. Also late in life, tired and depressed, he would abdicate his throne and split his massive domains between his son Philip and his brother Ferdinand. If Charles ever seriously entertained the idea that he or one of his successors could ever become emperor of the world, that dream crashed and disintegrated against the reality of just trying to rule much of Europe, much less the whole planet. Although Charles was not as handsome and chivalrous as his rivals Henry and Francois, he could be charming and gracious, even to beggars he came across in his travels and to Prisoners of War. But he also seems to have suffered from what his contemporaries called melancholy and what we might describe as clinical depression. Often he came across as stoic or cold, depending on who was writing about him, and could be callous toward members of his own family, treating them like extensions of himself or pawns in the great political game. Also, he was perhaps the worst person to be emperor at the same time as Martin Luther's runaway success as a firebrand. A true believer, Charles V genuinely feared that he could be damned to hell if he didn't do enough to stamp out heresy and unchristian faiths in his domains. In just one example, Charles refused to comply with a request from the English government to pardon some Protestant merchants who were in Spain and ended up arrested for heresy by the Spanish Inquisition. For him, it was a matter of principle, not politics. Part of the reason I dwelt so much on Charles V just now is that he really doesn't get as much attention as his more attractive rivals, Henry and Francois. More importantly, though, Charles V's shadow is about to loom over everything, including the papacy and the future of the Medici family. Plus, although neither could have known it at the time, the forces of history were setting the stage for a struggle between Charles V and Giulio de Medici that would leave unimaginable casualties in its wake. While Charles V from the very beginning had a great destiny mapped out for him, Giulio de' Medici was, frankly, seen as damaged goods just because of the fact that he was the illegitimate son of Lorenzo the Magnificent's brother, Giuliano de' Medici. It is true Lorenzo de' Magnificent did not hesitate to have him raised alongside his own children, but for a while, it was assumed that Giulio would become inducted into the church and then joined the Knights of St. John on the Greek island of Rhodes, manning one of the last Christian outposts in the eastern Mediterranean against the Ottoman Empire. This was something Giulio's cousin Giovanni, the future Pope Leo X, who also joined the church at an early age, considered for himself as well. However, it was more important for the family that Giovanni stay in Italy and represent the family in the Vatican. Giulio, on the other hand, was barred by church law from ever joining the higher offices of the church simply because he was born out of wedlock. If you're a Game of Thrones fan and this sounds like Jon Snow, well, you're not wrong. Instead, though, after Lenzo de Magnificent's death, Giulio decided to instead follow the path of Giovanni, who is always the one Medici sibling he was closest to. Julio became active with the church in Rome, despite the stigma that threatened to bar him from ever progressing far. After the Medici exile, he became an active advocate for the Medici cause, representing his cousin Piero the Unfortunate at the court of King Francois, and even leading armies on behalf of the French king, putting the training he got as a potential recruit to the Knights of St. John to use. In contrast to Pope Leo X, Giulio was shine reserved, while Giovanni was friendly and extroverted. Guicciardini described Giulio as very grave and cautious in all his actions, and perfectly self-controlled. Also, while Leo spent generously and never seemed to bother checking his bank accounts, Giulio was naturally economical, to the point that in another life he would have made a good accountant. Another advantage that Giulio had was that he inherited his father's good looks. Even now, you can see in his portraits that Giulio had classic chiseled Mediterranean features. It's even possible that Giulio, again unlike his cousin, may have had at least one love affair, but we'll put a pin in that for now. Almost as soon as he became Pope, Leo X had named Giulio the Archbishop of Florence, something that strained, if not outright broke, the church's restrictions on the children of illegitimate unions. So Leo formed a commission to look into reports that before he was murdered, Giuliano de' Medici had actually secretly married Giulio's mother, Fioretta Gorini, making Giulio legitimate after all. Needless to say, the Commission's conclusions were miraculously decided even before they had their first meeting. Both during the exile and as Pope, Giulio was Leo X's most trusted advisor. When Lorenzo the Younger died, Giulio rushed to Florence, where he took over as the unofficial maestro of the city government. Giulio was actually popular and undid most of the damage done by Lorenzo's incompetence and Leo's unpopular campaign to make Lorenzo the Duke of Urbino. Most notably, Giulio managed to repair the bad state finances that Lorenzo's neglect had caused. Yet as soon as news reached Florence that Pope Leo X died, Giulio set out for Rome, confident that he would be the next pope. This was all because of Charles V, while the old rivalries between different Roman noble clans remained a factor in papal elections. For the most part, the papal court was split down the middle between the pro-imperial and the pro-French parties. Since Cardinal Giulio was rightfully seen as shaping, Leo attempts anti-French foreign policy. Charles V actually wanted him to be the next pope as much as King Francois opposed the election of the cardinal he deemed an enemy of French interests. For now, though, The scales among the cardinals tilted in favor of the imperials. Unfortunately, there were a few flies in the ointment. Gioia wasn't the only man of the church rushing from Florence to Rome. There was also Francesco Sardini, who was as anti-Medici as ever. Also, there were two power players among the cardinals. The English cardinal Thomas Wolsey, yes, that cardinal Wolsey, and the Cardinal Alessandro Farnese, whose credentials as a Roman blue blood were impeccable. Both men were hoping to take advantage of the clash between French and imperial supporters and make themselves Pope. So even though Giulio de' Medici should have had the votes, the Cardinals instead settled on an unlikely compromise candidate Adrian Boyens, the Dutch son of a shipwright and the former tutor of Charles V himself. No one could have bet Adrian would have won. In fact, he wasn't even in Rome at the time of his election, but had been away in Spain where he served as Charles V's regent and the head of the Spanish Inquisition. When word reached him that he was suddenly the new pope, he was horrified, not least because right away he was already being pressured to do political favors for his former student Charles. Meanwhile, King Francois was already threatening to break away from the papacy and establish an independent Church of France if Adrian proved to be a puppet of the emperor. It's perhaps telling that Adrian didn't even choose a new regnal name for himself, and simply went by his own name, becoming Pope Adrian VI. Overall, Adrian was the worst kind of person to be the pope in that era a genuinely and deeply pious man. He set himself up in the most modest apartment in the Vatican he could find. He would rise before sunrise every day to pray, spent only a florin a day on his food budget, and ate humble meals prepared by a notoriously short-tempered elderly woman from Flanders. These things might seem to be good qualities for a pope, but even average Italians at the time just saw it as examples of the lack of sophistication they assumed were typical of barbarians from the north. The elites of the papal court had even more reason to dislike him. Save for a few trusted advisors, Pope Adrian required all the archbishops and cardinals staying in Rome to leave and make their primary residences in the diocese they reportedly represented. Some of them found themselves forced to go to places they had never before set foot in. Giulio himself discreetly left for Florence, fearing Sodolini's influence over the new pope, and resumed his political duties. However, Pope Adrian soon recalled him, since he and Charles V still saw him as a friendly ally. In the end, Julia would have almost as much influence over Pope Adrian as he had over his cousin Leo. After just short of a year as Pope, though, Pope Adrian suddenly sickened and died. Rumors of poison flew as they usually did in such circumstances, and it was rumored that Adrian was poisoned by agents of King Francois. Whatever the case, his official cause of death was kidney failure. During his time as pope, Adrian did little to address the Protestant Reformation or add to the glory of Renaissance Rome. Instead, his main legacy to the history of the papacy is in providing the answer to trivia questions like who was the only Dutch pope? Or who was the last non-Italian to be elected pope until Pope John Paul II in the 20th century? Now, once again, it was time for the pro-French the Imperials, and the simply ambitious to fight it out for the papal hat. This time, the squabbling and the negotiations were even more fierce. It became the longest papal conclave in history up to that time, lasting over two months. The cardinals were even threatened with having their food reduced to just bread and water if they didn't get on with it. But there were two other things that really broke the deadlock. First, one of Giulio's more serious rivals, Thomas Wolsey, ducked out of the competition when he became convinced that the people of Rome would riot if another non-Italian became pope. Second, Giulio managed to secure the vote of Pompeo Colonna, another cardinal from Roman aristocracy, who was holding out to become pope himself. Giulio did so by offering Pompeo ownership of the Riadio Palace in Rome. By November of fifteen twenty three, at the age of forty five, Giulio de' Medici, an orphan child born out of wedlock, became Pope Clement the Seventh. He wasn't as austere as Adrian the Sixth, but he was known for taking simple meals and set to work fixing the papal finances, just as he had for the government of Florence. He didn't hunt and didn't spend money on jesters or other crude entertainments. But at the same time, he knew how to play the political game, rewarding his allies and winning over people on the fence by distributing favors. And he was also mindful of artistic and architectural patronage, both in Rome and in Florence. This second Medici Pope seemed to have almost all of the good qualities of Pope Leo, but none of his personal faults in the excesses. The future for both the papacy and Florence must have looked bright if only they knew. Thank you for listening, and if you want to see maps, bibliographies, and more, check out MediciPodcast dot com. Also Feel free to support us on Patreon. Buona notte.